0: Hello and welcome to the Low-Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So, uh, today we're going to finish up talking about uh, uh, social archaeology, specifically settlement patterning, and then we are going to move on uh, to talk about cognitive uh, archaeology, where we kind of try and get into the minds of what were people thinking in the past. Um, We do that through all kinds of things like looking at art, and looking at religion, and things like that. So, pray stay tuned. Settlement patterning is how people map onto the landscape. Uh, So we'll uh, use a lot of maps, we'll use a lot of spatial data, horizontal excavations, um, and we'll look at how different artifacts, different um, buildings, or different features map onto the landscape, and that can tell us something about... Um, how people ordered themselves because what you do to the landscape, how you lay your things out is kind of a reflection of your mind. I don't want to get too like psychoanalytic or Freudian or who knows what because that's not what I do. Um, but, you know, if somebody went into your 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 room or your apartment or wherever you uh, live, they would know a lot about you by just the things and how they're laid out. Um, probably more about you than... Uh, you'd want them to know. Uh, A lot of our data comes from survey, and there are a variety of different theories that have been developed to help us understand uh, social patterning in the ancient world. So, for example, central place theory is the idea of... It's kind of like... I guess game theory is really popular now, but imagine that everybody is an automaton and they only do what is economically or otherwise very rational for them. So if you were living in, let's say, somewhere really flat and homogenous and boring like Kansas, and we're not talking with fossil fuels, we're, not talking, we're talking you know, the ancient world, there is a reason that people might spread out evenly over the landscape. If all resources were even, and water was even, and everything was evenly distributed, you would want to have the maximum spread with the minimal amount of distance between you. And that creates this honeycomb shape uh, that is central to central place theory. This this is the idea of a central place with equally distributed populations around it. Um, And so we have cities, and then these towns are equally distributed around it, and then there are smaller towns, and then villages. And this represents the least cost distribution of populations over the landscape. So if we had this, then we might say people are acting in a completely uh, objective sort of way. And therefore, um, that says one thing about, you know, like that they're centrally planned, that they're acting in that way. However, most people don't, do this, right? This is kind of like a objective, uh, best case scenario. And when people don't do that, there's probably reasons for it. Uh, so there, are in like southern Germany, where things are very homogenous, people spread out like this. But in most other places, things are not homogenous. There are rivers, there are lakes, there are mountains with mines, there are uh, fields, there are other uh, woodland resources. And so people will congregate around these resources differently Um, and that kind of shoots this whole idea down as well it doesn't shoot it down let me rephrase that when people deviate from this that tells us that something is going on Um, and since people usually do deviate from it we can take their ideas um, or their distribution as important. And we can look for, well, why are they all concentrated around one thing? What's there? What are we missing? Why is everybody concentrated in the middle of a swamp, for, for example? Uh, there's got to be some sort of social reason why people chose not to spread out in an even way. And I blew it up so we could see better. Hooray. Uh, I think I've talked about site hierarchy all, already. Uh, this is where we use different criteria to rank um, sites. In this case, we use, well, everyone's here now. Maybe we'll end... Maybe we'll end the day with Central Place or with the uh, with the game. <laughs> um, so again, I've, I think I've gone into site hierarchy pretty pretty well. Um, remember, it's the criteria that archaeologists choose, which may or may not be representative criteria for how the people themselves would have viewed what cities or towns or villages were more important than others. So remember that it is somewhat subjective um, and. Archaeologists might look at the same data and rank things differently based on what criteria they use. I need to get a better slide for that. All right. One of my favorite kind of abstractions are called uh, Thiessen polygons. So this was originally thought to uh, determine what territories were controlled by different powers in, uh, in the Maya area. Uh, or you could look at any other place that has, like, city-states or independent towns, and you want to see, well, what, what land around them would likely be owned or um, run by uh, each different town or city. So imagine these are all equal, equal, autonomous, independent towns, and they're on the landscape. And so how would we figure out what land? Well, the idea would be whatever land is closer... So if we put a pin here, since it's closest to this one, this area would belong to this area. Same thing here, but this one here would belong to them. So the way you figure that out is you draw a line between two polities, and you bisect it uh, with a perpendicular line. And then you do the same thing between these two and bisect it. And you can see where those two um, lines intersect. makes a point. And you do it again, and again, and again and over and over. And then you cut off the extra boundaries. And eventually, you create these polygons. So anything within these boundaries are closer to. So any any space within this line is closest to this one. Any space within here is closest to this one. So it's one way that you could theoretically figure out what territories belong to what. However, people don't map onto the landscape that nicely. That's not how it works. However, you could use it for looking at other things, like imagine these were wells in a desert or wells in another uh, dry area. People within this area probably would go to this well because it's closer. You're not going to walk extra far just for fun in a desert, right? So if somebody from here is going to this one instead, there's probably a social reason for it. So if we can track that down, this at least, again, provides us a baseline to say this is the rational thing to do. And when people don't do that, um, then something is probably going on socially that we don't know about. And when I say rationally, you have to understand that that is a very, um, let's say, Western industrialized view of the world, uh, what we would consider to be economically or time-wise, the rational choice might not seem rational at all to people who are living in these societies, just like even though there are rational choices for all of us. um, For example, going to college, getting a higher degree uh, seems like a rational choice, but statistics would say for some it is and for some it isn't, and going through you can never know until afterwards. So, and I say that as somebody who has three degrees and I work part-time uh, using that degree, so hooray. Um, and that's not to say you all won't go on to do uh, full-time work in your chosen career path. I'm just saying, um, you know, it's, it's, sometimes you don't know what's, what was the rational choice until afterwards was a little unfair. Here's a use of thesen polygons to show how uh, one would split up the city-states um, of ancient Italy, uh, and you can see the fun that some person had sitting at their computer drawing polygons. I've done this before. It's, it's kind of satisfying to draw them uh, if you're into like non-math geometry. It's just drawing lines. It's really fun. Uh, extent <coughs> is uh, something... Notice that these and polygons don't take the size or power of the site into... Rome is a hugely important city, yet it ranks just as important as Tiber or Caeto or I don't even know. Like, so they don't really, this is the only, there's only one input of data, your physical location. That's it. Uh, Extent uses um, both physical location and a scored social value. So uh, this is subjective. You have to say, well, how much more important is Rome? Ten times more than its neighbors, and how does that map onto the the landscape? That's kind of what um, researchers try and do with extent modeling. I actually use this in my dissertation, not that that matters so much. Um, But you could look at, oh, where are we? Uh, you can look and use uh, different criteria to create uh, areas of importance. Okay. Um, Sometimes we'll end up using much more uh, basic evidence like written evidence, uh, history saying uh, how territories were organized, who was uh, in league with whom, and so on. So that's a Pretty common and easy one. Oral evidence is just like historical evidence, but oral or perhaps written down. Uh, we heard from so and so that this is thus and such. Um, and ethnoarchaeology—remember uh, using extant living people who are, say, hunter-gatherers and looking at how they use the landscape—doesn't tell us how their ancestors lived or how other hunter-gatherers lived. It tells us one of the possibilities. Um, because remember, people who are living today have also gone through uh, thousands of years of cultural and behavioral evolution uh, just like us. So um, we can certainly use ideas from people today. How do people in the Amazon uh, manage their villages? And then they have you know gardens outside the village where they get a lot of their food from. How far away are they? What's an optimum distance? How often do they move them? Things like this uh, can tell us a lot about how they lived. Um, but that doesn't mean that when we go back in time and look at uh, Amazonian uh, tribes or um, bands from 2,000 years ago that they lived the same way. Maybe they did, but we'd have to find archaeological evidence to support that. Uh, Archaeology is not immune to changing times, um, and as we are a field of anthropology, we need to understand the basic social divisions. Um, Agency is... Agency is the uh, injection of the debate of free will or not into archaeology. So let's see. Tell you a story. Story time. Once upon a time, in the year 1960 something, um, there was a guy named Lewis Binford. Lewis Binford wrote a seminal paper called "Anthropology, uh, Excuse me, Archaeology as Anthropology," and firmly put American archaeology in the anthropological umbrella. So we're studying ancient people, period. Uh, In Europe, sometimes archaeology is seen as like the handmaiden of history instead of anthropology. Anyway, uh, so he came up with something called processual archaeology, which hopefully we'll get to talk about by the end, although we may run out of time. Processual archaeology looks for the process. It looks for not quite mathematical formulas to explain how people lived in the past, but kind of in that realm, right? There are processes by which people lived, and we're looking to understand those processes, and by understanding the processes, we can understand the people. However, it made people seem like little automaton robots. Like if you're sitting around a campfire butchering a deer, you're going to throw your deer scraps here, you know, because you're, you're a little robot, and you only live one way or you only think one thing or you only do one thing in a certain way. Then there came a time with the, the evil archaeologist Ian Hodder. No, I'm just kidding. If, if it was a bedtime story, neither of them would be evil, although Ian Hodder and I don't agree on much. Um, post Post-Processual Archaeology came afterwards as a reaction to Processual Archaeology, as the name implies. So they said, wait a minute. In Processual Archaeology, people are just little robots and little numbers and little statistics. They're real people. They need agency. Agency is the idea that you have choice in your life. You can live and do things however the heck you want. And that's okay, right? There's going to be variation. People don't do one or the other. People do one, the other, and a whole bunch of other things, right? So it's a spectrum, a continuum. It's a more organic process. Uh, It's more individualistic, right? So it was a complete reaction against it. Uh, What's the right one? Well, they're both, remember, back to my, is this glass, glass half full or half empty? Both of those are interpretations of the fact that this 100 milliliter beaker has 50 milliliters of water. That's the fact. It has 50 milliliters out of 100 possible. That is a fact, period. Whether it's half full or half empty is your interpretation. So post-percessual and processual people are looking at the same data and they're seeing different things. It's just different points of view. Not One isn't right, one isn't wrong. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, we now look for agency. So individual choice, action, and idiosyncrasy in the archaeological record is something that is very important if you can get it, but it's super hard to get because how do you get an individual's action, especially in preliterate societies where they don't record the hist- uh, history of individual people? Right? It's not until people start writing diaries and journals and they, are, and they come down to us that we can really get at a lot of individual choices. <laughs> Although you can say, like, oh, this house did things differently. That must be a sign of agency, whatever. Um, and now most po- people are... Most people. Most people that I hang out with are processual plus. So we're largely the processual type except we've added things that weren't in original processual, like gender, uh, which, remember, gender is a socially defined concept, roughly correlated, but not always, with sex, which is biological, so it drives me nuts. Just yesterday, I applied for a, an Ace Hardware rewards card, and it said, what gender are you, male or female? And I said, wrong answers. Uh, gender is masculine or feminine, or man or woman, or however your society defines gender. Their gender genders are defined by your society, whereas sex is your biological makeup. And male female does not encompass the range because although we think that it's male and female, there's actually overlap. Now there's overlapping uh, Venn diagrams of of sex that are born. Um, it's really hard to know what percentage of people are born <laughs> intersex, but it's, I've seen statistics as high as 5%. I've seen it as low as like just under 1%. So um, most people don't even know that they were born intersex, uh, that are, uh, because the doctors fix it uh, right away. Um, And so you're raised as a little boy or a girl, even though your biological sex was indeterminate when you were born. Um, And sometimes people find out when they're adults, to great shock. Um, Anyway, whatever. So we're getting kind of far afield. But these are certainly things that we think about as archaeologists, because in the past, uh, people wouldn't have had the mm, social... uh, the medicinal wherewithal to simply reassign or assign people uh, a different sex at birth and so they would have had to come up with social things to deal with somebody who's intersex and a lot of uh, indigenous and pre-industrial cultures had ways to deal with them and usually uh, you had one of two options either those people were seen as special uh, like in California natives where they saw them as kind they were called two spirits and they were uh, they were given special tasks dealing with death, um, and they were given a special status, um, and they weren't necessarily discriminated against in the way that um, might happen in other societies, which goes the other way, where people are discriminated against because they're between the two. Um, so it's usually bifurcated. There's not as many middle-of-the-road, and it's fascinating for me to see our own society changing uh, on this topic, which I think is fascinating. Um, Okay, um, age—something we deal with um, in archaeology, especially physical anthropology. We try and get the age of people, but the role of people, based on their age, is something very important. I've mentioned a couple of times how uh, babies with wealth are one sign of, you know, uh, more com- um, more complex social uh, organizations. Um, but we can look at other things like uh, w- what are the tasks expected of people at different ages and things like that. These are all socially defined, right? What, what sorts of responsibilities are given to people of different ages? Yeah. Okie dokie. So we're about to lose. Yeah. So we are supposed to do the, for those of you that came in a little, uh, after we had talked about, uh, I brought snacks and we are going to do a game. However, uh, A, we're about to lose lose Dirk, and B, let's do it Friday, because Friday's a better day to do a kind of fun sort of uh, thing anyway. And we're already rolling, so might as well just continue. So I apologize for those of you that had dreams of candy. Uh, You'll have to slake your thirst for candy at the uh, grocery store, because everything's cheap right now for Halloween, uh, Halloween candy. Don't buy Halloween candy if it's still there. Easter candy. Okay. Uh, so yeah, let's merge right on into cognitive archaeology, um, where we'll also discuss religion and art, etc. Uh, because uh, one of my favorite professors in grad school would call this, you know. Religion, art, ritual, hoo-ha, like just uh, we. OK, maybe I'm Maybe I'm extending or projecting onto other archaeologists. Some archaeologists love this stuff. It's this touchy-feely, squishy stuff that's in your head uh, is a lot harder to see archaeologically. And some archaeologists are very comfortable. Mmm, how do I say this really nicely and diplomatically? Okay, what I would say is they're very comfortable arguing beyond their data and saying things that uh, they feel to be correct but don't have evidence for, which is not my cup of tea. Um, And they would probably take issue with how I presented that. Um, They might say they're painting a fuller picture of the people of that time and how they lived. Okay, Um, I disagree, but uh, that's my own personal choice. Um, But it's still important to consider these things and ask, do we have evidence for them? And when we do, that's wonderful. Uh, and we should go into it in great detail when we do. not always possible. Um, so basically, uh, cognitive archaeology has to do with the study of past ways of thought. Study of past ways of thought, uh, usually from material remains. Right? We don't have material remains, unless you have a time machine. There's really, it's really difficult to get back at these without just projecting your own thoughts and feelings back on the past. Um, Okay. So, it can be... Oh, Sorry, I'll leave that up for a second. The study of past ways of thought from material remains. would be the formal definition. Although it often turns into, or it can, if you're not careful, it turns into a Rorschach test, because... Uh, right. If we look at this, it would have been really funny had I put up a Rorschach test that was like a fake Rorschach test that was like a picture of an elephant and be like, "Some of you might see an elephant, or some of you know, no, this is a Rorschach test ink right? So you can see what your subconscious wants to push on it." I today see a butterfly, which is what I see for most Rorschach tests. I think that doesn't tell anything to anybody. But say we're looking at a new piece of art. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen Picall's tomb. Does anyone want to venture a fanciful interpretation? I mean, seriously, like, w- you guys probably haven't seen this before. You know, I have a background in this area, so I have an idea, like, what supposedly was meant by it. So I'm just curious. Does anyone ha- see anything that they think is interesting that they want to point out in this thing? I can zoom in a little bit. Any possible interpretations? See you Friday. Oops. Let's see if I can zoom in here. Yeah. So, for example, um. The person looks like they're sitting on some type of like fountain. Hmm, a fountain, sure. Or yeah, no, go for it. Like, There's no wrong answers because. Water, okay, cool. Yeah, man or woman? What makes you say man? Um, like what they're Okay. Skirtish sort of thing. Yeah, I feel like probably wear something Fancy hair. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else see anything interesting you want to point out? There's no wrong answer. Like, because there's, this is one of the most interpreted things in the Maya world, and every definite, or every interpretation differs. Because people have new or, or different understanding of iconography. Iconography is kind of a Rorschach test. So like this cross in the middle, uh, early explorers said, ah, this is proof of uh, that these were the lost tribes of Israel who also converted to Christianity somehow. So this is proof that Christian theology had reached the New World, never mind that there are lots of things that take the form of a cross without having anything to do with Christianity. This happens to be a tree. Uh, Well, okay, current interpretation is that this is a tree. Um, And there's a bird on top of it. And this bird is one of the... uh, Yeah, with the Quetzal feathers. And here's his wing. Here's his eye. And here's... This one is wearing uh, jewelry. He's wearing uh, ear flares, which is like giant earrings for some reason. Um, And he's biting... I can't even tell. What is he biting? I can't tell. Uh, He's got something coming out of his mouth. Maybe he's vomiting stars. Who knows? Yeah? I was going to ask if they dig Christianity before you explained all that. Oh, if they dig it? Because, yeah, because um, at first I thought you were sitting in a bucket, and then you, like, zoomed in, and I realized it was, like, a skirt. Uh Uh-huh. And I saw that, like, as a table, and, like, they were doing, like, a sacrifice of God. like, Like, like like trees and birds and stuff hmm uh one fanciful interpretation was that this was proof of uh the aliens because uh obviously what's happening here is pakal is the name of this person uh pakal is sitting on a rocket ship, and here are the flames, and here are the walls of the rocket ship, right? And this is how they're depicting them. And he is obviously working some controls as he blasts off into outer space. Uh, no evidence of that. Can't say it didn't happen, but I have no evidence of it. Um, Pakal is a man. We know that because of uh, we found his body, and through the inscriptions, we know who this is, Pakal. His name was Pakal. He ruled uh, Palenque for over 80 years, I think 83 years when he died. Um, uh, But he's wearing like a jade. This is a jade loincloth, so it's made out of like the equivalent of gold for the Maya. Um, And so when I started doing this, I can't remember. He's either falling into the earth. So this monster here is the earth monster. Uh, He represents the ground. Um, And so he's... And these are... uh, In other depictions, where it's clear, this is actually what represents a cave. So he's like falling into the earth, into a cave, into the earth monster's head or mouth or whatever. And then from him is emerging the the world tree, which holds up the sky. So it's kind of seeing like his sacrifice as not like killed himself, like throughout his life or uh, maybe when he died, um, because this is on his sarcophagus. Him going into the underworld sustains the world by holding up the sky. With the, you know, this is what the interpretation right now, but this changes like every ten years. Um, and then when I started archaeology, he was emerging from the underworld, which is also an interpret. So it's like, and yeah, I asked a prominent art historian. I'm like, all right, is Picol falling into the earth or coming out of the earth? And she said, well, it's both. Well, that's not an answer. I mean, it is an answer, because sometimes they have... You could, you know, it could go both ways. It's like the picture of the, the old lady or the young woman. You've seen those optical illusions. That's perhaps what they're doing here. They're like, well, it could be interpreted both. Who kn- Rorschach test, right? So that's why this stuff is so difficult. Unless you have an accompanying text that says, this is a picture of Pakal falling into the underworld, uh, it can be very interpretive, um, which, you know is half the fun, and learning what all these different things are in different contexts. And we have, oh, oh yeah, actually. Here's a better uh, picture of the rocket ship. Put it on its side, and it's blasting through space. Uh, If you're interested in all that uh, space stuff, you should look for uh, Von Daniken. This is the name of the the author. Uh, Chariot of the Gods. None of it is true. My favorite is... uh, that if you go on top of the pyramid, uh, in uh, one of the main pyramids in Egypt, and then you blast off straight up, you can see like all these other civilizations. So you can do it now in Google Earth, and you blast off straight up, because uh, their their argument was, well, the only way that it would be aligned this way to these other you know important ancient cities would be as if, if they could see it from this point of view, because they were on spaceships. But if you do that on Google Earth now and you zoom back, you cannot see it because of the curvature of the Earth. I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was, this is what, in, uh, in one, arch, if we just do Intro to Archaeology, and we don't do any of the ancient, um, ancient societies, I have more time, and we actually watch an episode of Ancient Aliens, and I stop it like every three minutes to say, okay, this is why that can't be true, <laughs> basically. All right, what other sorts of cognitive things can we get at through physical evidence? Well, uh, language is mm, indisputably human. Uh, We have, I think it's fair to say, the most complicated and complex language on Earth that we, well, certainly that we know of. And uh, it would be interesting to find if another animal was having as much uh, conversations and complex thought as we are. Um so there are some physical characteristics. Um and even though the brain is soft tissue and it goes away, there will be a reverse imprint of your brain on the inside of your skull. So when the brain rots away, you can fill, you know, we get a volunteer perhaps who can let one, you know, you cut your head off, let it sit outside, let all the soft tissue rot away, and then we can um pour plaster into your empty skull. Um, and then crack your skull and take the plaster out, and it will be a mold of your brain, which is kind of fun. And so we can actually see the development of um, both, or of of the motor area that controls your tongue, your mouth, and that gets larger over time. Um, association with the Bro- Broca's area, which is um, speech, and then comprehension area, Wernicke's area. We can see these develop. Uh, and it's a slow, gradual process. It's not like there was a kid born who could talk and his parents couldn't. It would have been a slow, gradual um, change over time. Evolutionarily, being able to speak uh, with greater specificity would give uh, benefit or um, advantage to those on the spectrum of human capacity for speech. Here's the human capacity for speech. Those that could speak... Those that could talk gooder uh, would have a better chance of survival in a pack-like group situation where you're trying to survive. And those who couldn't communicate as well uh, probably were had their butts kicked by the people who could out-plan and out-think uh, them. There were, that's one uh, evolutionary theory to explain why language developed to such a high degree. Um, there's also um, nerve canals in our in our um, throat and behind our, um, our tongues that come in the hypoglossal canal, where the hypoglossal nerve went, and it gets larger and larger through time. It's the one that controls your tongue, and obviously uh, our tongue control is minute, unlike chimpanzees and others who have less control over their tongue. Excuse me. People often use tool design than to a lesser extent. Um, ceramics, uh, to talk about organized thought. Because making a stone tool requires not only skill, but forethought. And so when we see people picking a material for a certain tool or avoiding uh, certain impurities in the material or having the virtuosity to create something like this. um, So this is what's called a flint eccentric in the Maya area and in profile what it is it's three heads so here's his nose and here's his top lip and his bottom lip his eye would be right there and this is a headdress with at least i think that's one but at least one another bird and here's the tail feather of the bird and his and we know this because there are similar profiles on drawings that are more filled in so the ability to do this just I mean, at this point, obviously, people are thinking at a modern level in terms of cognitive ability. This is, you know, maybe 1,000 or 1,500 years old. So um, it's hard to say exactly when people reached our same cognitive ability because, again, cognitive ability is on a spectrum even today, right? So some of us um, have more cognitive ability than others. Um, and so it's hard to say exactly when people reached our level of thought, um, but it was at least tens, twenties, even hundreds of thousands of years ago. People became anatomically modern and indistinguishable from us today about 200,000 years ago. You can see people uh, putting their thoughts into practice by going to get, uh, in this case, stone tools or other um, items across the landscape. They're not just... <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry for still having a <clears throat> remainder of cold hanging on. It's not just uh, wandering randomly across the landscape to you know, happen into whatever adventure befalls you. No, people were going, like, we're going to go right to this obsidian source because we know it's there. People are going to go to these different church sources, or they're going to go to where the certain temper is. Uh, or where there's good hunting grounds or things like that. Those are harder to see archaeologically. Um, and this shows forethought, it shows planning. Um, it's really hard to say. Um, yeah, okay. Um, food sharing is a fun one. Uh, you have to think about, so <laughs> ties into my life right now because we bought a house and uh, they didn't tell us that the refrigerator wasn't working. So, we have a refrigerator full of stuff and coolers. We're buying ice to keep it cold. It's frustrating. We're trying to eat it all quickly. So, in the ancient world, there were no refrigerators and people didn't have refrigerators with the possibility of saving leftovers. So, what do you do? You distribute your leftovers and you give them away. Because, when, even though I don't have leftovers today, Uh, Oh, Eric's in front, so I'm going to pick on Eric. Eric has leftovers tomorrow, and he gives me leftovers because I gave him my leftovers from today. Maybe not leftovers, but I say, oh, we have too much food, come over and eat dinner. And then the next night, I go to Eric's, and he feeds me dinner. Uh, So food sharing is a way to um, save uh, otherwise perishable resources rather than letting them go to waste. better to give it to someone else. Um, And so this... Basic idea, which obviously doesn't have a lot of organized thought behind it when we're talking about this context, Uh, but it does start the beginnings of reciprocity. And reciprocity, I think I mentioned before, is the glue that binds um, people together. And it's thought that reciprocity may have started with food sharing, because we see it among uh, our great ape cousins and who the alpha male chimpanzee or the alpha female uh, bonobo shares their food with, or especially their meat, tells you about the pecking order in that troop. It tells you about who's on the ins and who's on the outs. Um, And because they do it, it's likely that our ancestors uh, had similar behaviors. Not certain, but very likely. It's a bit controversial. Um, But it also shows that they had really complex uh, social organization and understanding um, because let's say you know we're all sharing meals and one night I'm on and uh, when I have extra you know I invite everybody over and everyone else is doing it except for Brian and Brian is just going over to everyone else's house every other night and eating everyone else's food and he just never happens to have extra Uh, and so that you know, eventually everyone will catch on, and they'd stop inviting Brian over to their house um, because, and that's kind of a complex. And it's not just us; like, uh, higher apes will do that too. They'll be like, "No, you're a cheater. You don't get any meat." Um, and so, uh, that's a pretty complex sort of calculation that you're doing, fuzzy math in your head, like, "All right, how many meals have we gotten that person?" You know, think about this the next time that you have a gift that you have to, re, you know, reciprocate, and you're trying to figure out about how much they spent on your gift so you can buy them about the same amount so it's even and things like that. That's like a primordial thing for us to do. It's like my buddy uh, in high school who, he would always carry around a $100 bill. So when we go out for like ice cream, he'd be like, oh, I don't want to break my 100 Can you just get it for me and I'll pay you back later? He didn't he never had that much money. He always had like one he had like, we tease him, he had like one hundred dollar bill all through high school and he never broke it. And everybody and he never paid me back. He was just a... I oh, I stopped lending him money. He's a lawyer now. Oh. He's a good no, he's a good lawyer. He did law school and a PhD in philosophy at the same time because he's a brilliant person. Anyway. Um so I've talked about burials before, um, and I've kind of alluded to the fact that burials are a really great window into the past, because it is um, usually how people uh, who are grieving at you know, a very stressful point in their life, how they react. How they uh, treat the burial, what they think they need it for the afterlife. Burials are important for archaeologists, not be ju- just because they have really cool goodies, but they tell us a lot about the thought process um, and the beliefs or uh, just the humanity of the people um, that came before us. Uh, some of the earliest burials were buried with flowers. Um, and it probably wasn't because they were stinky, it's probably because flowers are pretty. You know, uh, it just really, like you find flowers in a grave that's like 30,000 years old, and you're like, you know, these were people and lived in a completely different world, but, you know, we're related somehow. I don't know. I just find it kind of like a reaching across the centuries sort of thing. Um but yeah, uh, we can learn about afterlife. This is one of the few ways that we know for sure that people thought you had an afterlife, because why else would you give food and goods that are perfectly good uh, and useful to somebody who's dead, who can certainly not use them, right? Lots of uh, great information from uh, early burials. Um, Neanderthals buried their dead uh, in a similar way to uh, humans that lived at the same time, suggesting that Neanderthals had complex. Uh, Views on life and death, just like us. Mm-hmm. So here we have uh, another burial. Interesting. Uh, why are they head to head? Hard to say. Okay. Representation. Um, so is this is any depiction or design on an object? So art or at least the beginnings of art. Um, This this is a sea change or a a leap of cognitive uh, ability when we start making representative art. The fact that we can all say that that is a happy person is not... Hasn't been able to be done for all of human history. It's only in the last—well, this is a debated number—100,000 years or 30,000 years. Take your pick—that uh, people have been able to associate that with this, right? Because uh, before that, people would say, "No, those are just lines. They're not a face. That's not a face. That's a board with lines on it." Which is also true, right? Uh, they probably wouldn't have said that like that because. It, English, and whatever, uh, but representative art uh, is, is a new thing. Um, I would have drawn other emojis, but I'm afraid that I would draw an emoji of, I don't know, uh, uh, what's a, a seesaw, and it would have some perverse sexual meaning that I have no idea about, so I didn't draw any emojis. Sorry. Um, so we start to see cave art. Um, and, you know, these later things are clearly representation, right? They're, those are clearly animals, and those are clearly aliens or some sort of people with funky hairdos. Um, and these are, you know, really clear part, pieces of representative art showing that people can think abstractly. They can say, this represents that, which is um, kind of a new leap. Um, here we have, you know, really phenomenal artistry that show uh, proportion and, you know, a really realistic depiction of animals that were important to them. Um, but what about that? It's clearly not natural. It's certain that a, a person did that. It was found in context with early people. Uh, is that hundred thousand years old? Ah, it's doesn't. Uh, Seventy-seven thousand years old. Is that the first art? It's the earliest. Debatable art. It's clearly something, but was it a calendar? Was it just cr- crosshatches so that it could make it rub on a skin to soften it? Or is it representing the stars? And the Brr! Rorschach test, right? But is that the beginnings of representative art that we know of? Perhaps, right? So there's a, there's a leap in there somewhere uh, that tells us a lot about how people were changing in their minds and how they were thinking. All right, we have to stop there as riveting as as, uh, these lectures are. Uh, But we'll pick up on Friday, and we will end the day for sure with uh, candy and uh, game. Thanks for listening to this Low-Tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the Low-Tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like license, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.